You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. We've been looking through this book, 1 Samuel, which, um, and we've met many characters through this book. Um, last week, Tom spoke to us about Saul and Saul's sin of envy. Um, really, uh, Saul has been gripped in bitter envy about this young David who's come uh, out of nowhere, really, defeated their, their, work, their most terrifying enemy and uh, continued to be a successful warrior. And uh, people are loving David, and Saul hated it. So uh, as we heard last week, David uh, is now on the run because Saul literally attacked David twice through spears at David to try and kill him. And then he sent him on a mission impossible, uh, which David didn't find impossible. Uh, Saul was trying to get him killed again. And then Saul sent uh, his own soldiers to kill David. None of this has worked so far, but what it has done is sent David on the run, fleeing for his life. So David could have, could have sort of split the kingdom. He could have... He could have... Uh, Sorry, some friends of mine just said I didn't say hello. Um, he could have split the kingdom. He could have left the kingdom and, um, and, and said, come with me. This guy's mental. He's mad. He's gone crazy. But he didn't. He honored the king and he just left quietly and ran for his life. But at the same time, he's gone through terrible time. Did he deserve it? Did he do anything wrong? No, he was actually a very loyal subject to the king. He was in the king's household. He had put his life on the line. Uh, and if anything, he had done really well for the king and the nation. Um, but he had to flee for his life. Author Jean Edwards puts it like this. And we may put the map on the wall, perhaps while we uh, look at this part. This is, as I put last time, uh, this is the areas where David is fleeing, and perhaps as we, uh, you listen to this, uh, this author imagines it like this. You can look at the screen. He ran through soggy fields and down slimy riverbeds. Sometimes the dogs came close. Sometimes they even found him. But swift feet, rivers, and watery pits hid him. He took his food from the fields, dug roots from the roadside, slept in trees, trees hid in ditches, crawled through briars and mud. For days he ran, not daring to stop or eat. He drank the rain, half naked, all filthy. On he walked, stumbled, crawled and clawed. Caves were castles now, pits were home. In times past, mothers had always told their children that if they did not behave, they would end up like the town drunk. No longer, they had a better, more frightening story now. Be good or you'll end up like the giant killer. In Jerusalem, when men taught of being submissive to kings and honoring the Lord's anointed, David was the parable. See, this is what God does to rebellious men. The young listeners shuddered at the thought of and somberly resolved never to have anything to do with rebellion. Others had to flee as the king's madness grew. First one, then three, then ten, and eventually hundreds. Long After long searching, some of these fugitives made contact with David. They had not seen him for a long time. The truth was, when they did see him again, they simply didn't recognize him. He had changed. His personality, his disposition, his total being had been altered. Quite a helpful little story there, just to put us in the picture 
looking at uh, Psalms that David wrote around this time. Very helpful to understand what he was going through, reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, other places in the Bible that talk a little bit about this. this can we just have the maps on the, on the screen again? These, this is the area David was on the run, going through forests, going, uh, as we just read, muddy ditches, hiding in caves, hiding in the wilderness, running from uh, a predator who literally wanted to kill him. David was in a uh, very real threat for his life, not knowing whether he would see another day running around this area for years after uh, running away from this maniac who had completely lost his sense of uh, perspective and uh, lost God's anointing on him. Uh, And David, make no mistake, is being sinned against. He is having a horrendous time uh, under the attack of a sinful man. And uh, as we look at this today and we look at how he has received sin, we're going to look at how do we respond to sin? How does David respond to sin? Because the truth is we've all experienced injustice. We've all experienced sin against us. Maybe you've had some sort of spear thrown at you. Perhaps betrayal or lies, abuse, being let down by people that you trusted in. Whatever it is, however serious or superficial, the pain is very real when we get sinned against. I don't know what your tactic is. Perhaps you pick up the spear and you throw it back. Perhaps you dodge it and run. Perhaps you take it and you're a bit of a martyr. But there are many ways to respond to abuse being thrown at us or just difficult times being thrown at us. And we're going to look at how does David respond Well, he dodged the spear and he left and fled in a quite honorable way. He could have split the kingdom. He could have said, come, let's go. This maniac is falling to pieces. Let's get out of here. And he could have taken a lot of people with him. People loved David at that time. But he honored the king, just left on his own and fled. And uh, for years was hunted down until people started to even misunderstand. They started to question, maybe, maybe David was in the wrong. And maybe you've had uh, accusations put against you when actually you've been the victim. And you know how it feels when, when people say, yeah, but mate, there's no smoke without fire. Okay, So we know you probably did do something. And David's in this position where people are starting to say about him things that just aren't true. He's, he's at the hands of betrayal. And he's done, he's done nothing wrong. And it's likely that when we've experienced sin against us, wrongdoing against us, that we want justice. We want things put right. This is wrong and it's not fair and people need to know about it or I just need to be put right. Often we want justice for other people. We read things in the news or we watch things on TV or we may see things in the street and just think that is not right. We read and hear about abuse and murder and other despicable acts, and we swell with anger. And that is right. We were made to image God, and God is a God of justice. So it's right that there's something in us. When we see something that is wrong, we don't just turn a blind eye and go, well, it's none of my business, but we actually say that is wrong. God is like that. God does not turn a blind eye to wrongdoing. It's just a few verses that I picked out. But the whole Bible really shows that God is a God of justice. Isaiah 61 says, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. 
Psalm 37, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. And Isaiah 30, for the Lord is a God of justice. God is not somebody to turn a blind eye, not to just sweep things under the rug. Let's just pretend it never happened. He's a God who will bring about justice one way or another. And we'll talk about that as we go on. As I said, it's why our blood boils when we read of people trapped in the sex slave industry or the recent story I read in the paper, a, a horrendous incident that, uh, that I read that, I, I don't want to say it detailed, but, but uh, the uh, ISIS uh, group in the, in the Middle East killed uh, a baby in front of its mother in the most horrendous way. And you just know that never should have happened. That is wrong. And we can get silly about what is right and wrong in our postmodern culture where we say, well, you do what feels good to you, I'll do what feels good to me. There's no right or wrong. There is right or wrong. And there's a God who decides what is right or wrong. And David understands that. If you've been sinned against, it's not wrong to be hurt. And it's not wrong to want justice. David himself was definitely an advocate of justice. You read some of the Psalms. And it's quite scary how he actually asks God to bring about justice at times. He wants God to crush his enemies. He wants God to deliver him. He wants justice for certain things. David is an advocate of justice. So what does David do to Saul? If it's right to desire justice and Saul has tried to kill him a number of times, is hunting him down, surely we're going to find David, when he gets the opportunity, takes out justice on Saul. Well, let's turn to... Chapter 24, it will be on the screen if you haven't got a Bible. Uh, And we'll read this chapter. It is absolutely amazing, this turn of events. Here goes. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David. Remember, David's maybe got a few hundred with him. And his men in the front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. And that could mean what you think it means, or it could mean he's going to sleep. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterwards, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, 
See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom did you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You're more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me in this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Quite an amazing account what happened. I mean, David is hiding in the caves. And who should come in but Saul? Not only come in, but uh, get into such a position that David could very, very easily kill him. And David uh, goes to, towards him and cuts off part of his robe, but knows even that he doesn't feel clear about in his conscience. And he shows Saul, I, I got, this is how close I was to you. I could have killed you. I'm not after you. I'm not trying to kill you. Why are you against me? And so David has mercy on Saul. And Saul's response to mercy is to break. His heart is softened. His, his heart against David, unfortunately only momentarily, but it is softened. He realizes, I'm a sinner. I have been hunting you for no good reason. Unfortunately, it doesn't stick. And two chapters later, I'm not going to read it all again, but a very similar account happens where Saul and his army are camped nearby. And David uh, can see that they're there. And he goes at nighttime with one of his soldiers, one of his spies, and they manage to get right into the center of the camp, so much so that he is standing over Saul as Saul is asleep. And Saul has next to his own head his spear, probably the one that he's thrown at David, sticking in the ground. And, and David's uh, uh, spy, his servant who's with him, says, kill him, now's your time. God's given him into your hand again. If you don't do it, let me do it. And David responds to Abishai and says, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. And again, in that instance, he, uh, he, he takes the, the, uh, David takes the spear and the jug of water and goes outside the camp. And when he's in a safe distance, he shouts and gets one of the king's servants to recognize, Look, I was so close again. 
I got the thing that was right by his bed and the thing that was right next to his head and I didn't do anything. And he actually lambasts the, uh, the, the, the guards and says, you weren't even watching after God, after God's anointed. You're not doing a very good job, are you? I could have killed him right now. And again, Saul hears what's going on and recognizes this David has done nothing wrong. If anything, he's just merciful and honoring me still. And Saul, at the hands of mercy, again, is softened. But not for long, unfortunately. So if you're watching this on TV as a movie, you're probably shouting at the TV, David, what are you doing? Kill him. It's your chance. Come on. You're, you, you know that what he's done to you. He's right there. God has given him into your hands. You're probably saying the same thing as the men are saying to him, his own men. Some of his own men are probably thinking, he's turning to a coward. He hasn't got the guts. Come on, David, do it. If you won't do it, I'll do it. God has given him to you on a plate, David. And the truth is, killing Saul would have meant his enemy gone, his suffering gone, his men's suffering gone, and his place at the throne vacant. David, get on with it. Come on, surely this is God's will for you. All the stars are aligning. Come on. And David doesn't. What is he doing? Well, David is convinced of a few things that we should be convinced of. David is convinced that God is God. God is good and he is a God of justice. So David trusts God to act justly at the right time and doesn't take things into his own hands. That's the first thing really we see about David is he's trusting God to be the God he says he is, to be the God of justice. And therefore, it actually has impact on his life. We can all sing and shout and dance and clap and say, I love Jesus. And then we go home and carry on as if nothing's different. We just run our own lives and do whatever we want to do. But here we see David with a perfect opportunity to act out of his own will. And later on in the Bible, we see this echoed, not my will, but his will. I'm not going to take this into my own hands. I know what kind of God I serve, and that actually makes a difference in my life. I'm going to trust him to act justly. Alan Redpath, author of a book, The Making of a Man of God, about David, says this, How easy it is to take the initiative. How hard to wait for God. How painful, perhaps, are the circumstances, but how much more painful are the consequences of actions outside of God's will? That may be very true for some of us in this room now. There are things in our lives where we just know, oh, come on, you really expect me to like, do the Christian thing here. This is an impossible situation. There's no way. God will let me off. It's fine. And Alan Redpath very helpfully says, It may be a painful or difficult circumstance, but if you trust in God, you understand it's much more painful to go against the actions of God's will. It's not going to end well for you. Maybe you're in a difficult circumstance where you've started to take things into your own hands, and instead of trusting God of his timing and his wisdom, you've been acting as though your actions are justified. Maybe even friends have backed you up. Maybe you've been doing something you know, Yeah, I probably shouldn't be doing this. But like David's men, even you've got friends around you, possibly even leaders have said to you, you'll probably be all right. Don't worry. God will let you off. You'll be okay. Or maybe, no, it's it's valid. 
you have been treated really badly. So, you know, have a break. Do it your way. You know, David's men were saying things to him like, he tried to kill you, David. I can still see the spear flying past your head. Come on. God has put him on a plate for you. You could end it all now with one blow. And maybe that's what it's like having friends around you who encourage you to go away from what you know in your heart is God's way. And you know, I've taken things into my own hands. This isn't what God's called me into. Well, can I appeal to you right here, right now, to repent? It's never too late to turn to God and trust him and say, God, help me to trust your wisdom, your understanding, your timing, your ways. And one of the ways we can do this is by responding how we were today in worship to who God is. As David has, he trusts that God is a God of justice, therefore I don't have to take matters into my own hand. But is he a harsh God of justice? No, David knows he is the most loving God. He is a God I can trust because I have understood what life is for. I've understood what he is, who God is. Let's have a look quickly at Psalm 57, which is a, a psalm that David wrote on the run at this time, in the cave. It even says at the beginning, as he fled from Saul in the cave, Psalm 57. It's extraordinary to be able to see what he was thinking, what he was saying to God in these very moments. And in the first two verses, he says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. David understands It's not about my purposes. I don't go to God so that he can sort out my purposes. For me, I go to God because he fulfills his purposes for me. David understands the bigger picture. I am a small part of God's story. He is not a small part of my story. He's not a side character or an extra in my story. I am just a part of what he is doing. And this perspective frees David. He's, he's able to uh, see that God is bigger than, than me. God is bigger than Saul. God is bigger than anything to David. And therefore, God, David doesn't follow God only on David's terms. Yeah, God, I'll trust you if you do it my way. And then when it doesn't, I mean, we've all, we've all probably done this. When we trust God to do things our way, when it doesn't work out, we get angry with God. As if we can put him in our debt. David understands, no, I can't do that. He is God. He has got his uh, priorities, his ways, his purposes for me. And God's purposes for us are so much better than our purposes for ourselves. As Tom mentioned last week, God is always doing a thousand things in our lives. And we only ever know about one or two of them. We can only comprehend a few things. Probably the ones we most want or the ones we're most focused on. But God is working a great work in us all the time. Those that are uh, being saved, he says, I will finish the work I've begun in you. I am the author and perfecter of your faith. I haven't just called you to me so you can get stuff. As we heard this morning, I've called you to me so that I can renew a relationship with the Father and make you more like Jesus. It's so much greater than our, our little desires. Even though they may be very real to us. I want to be loved. Yeah, you will be loved. But trust me the way I want to love you. 
God is doing a great work in David. David's going through a testing and refining time. And in the process, God is making him into a man who would be a mighty king one day. A man after his own heart. A man who reflected Jesus. We see Jesus as the greater David one day. But the reality is, God wants us all to reflect Jesus. Those who are being saved, that is what he's, he's doing in us. He's refining us to make us reflect Jesus. I'll illustrate it with this little parable here. One day a refiner was looking at his gold in the fire. A passerby asked him how, how long he kept the gold in the fire. He said, until it is purified. The passerby then asked, how do you know when it is purified? And the refiner asked, answered, I know it is purified when I can see the reflection of my face in it. This is why Jesus puts us through the fire. He wants the reflection of his face to be seen in us. His purposes for you are much greater than your purposes. Not just fleeting pleasures, but a deep wealth of joy and understanding of who God is, relationship with God. And David hasn't learned, not, he's not only learned how to see God as bigger and me as part of God's story, but also he has consistently learned to take refuge in God. If we look again at the beginning of 57, it doesn't start, God, get me out of here. God, you've messed up. He doesn't go to God shaking his fist. What have you done? He actually goes to God instead saying, in you, my soul takes refuge. Not in Saul being dead, my soul takes refuge. Or in the safety of the palace, my soul takes refuge. No, in you, my soul takes refuge. And that delights God. God wants to be our refuge. He wants to be the thing that we hide under. Hide under his wing, as the psalm says. It's amazing. David's on the run. He's been betrayed. He's hurting. He's under incredible stress and stress and pressures. Not sure if he's going to see the day out, let alone the week. It's hard to see any glimmer of hope. And he doesn't say, get me out of here. He says, God, in you I take refuge. Just next page for most of you probably. Psalm 63 is another one that may have been written around this time. And if we look at this, we see God, David again, not going to God to shake his fist, not going to God hopelessly, but going to God trusting in God. Just going to read the first eight verses. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I mean, all the things he could be saying right now. Get me out of here. My soul thirsts for the kingdom again. I want to be in power. I could be king by now. Come on. I haven't got my, any wives with me or anything. I need things. No. My soul thirsts for you. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
Isn't that incredible? David knows not just about God. He knows an experience of God. He knows God. He's met God. He is living out of the goodness of a relationship with God. Not just, I'm clawing to try and keep God happy. Or I'm supposed to do this. Yeah, I'm going to be King David one day. So you know, it's my duty to sort of do my daily Bible studies and write my psalm each day. No, he's doing it out of the overflow of knowing God. A relationship with him. Maybe you're here today because you've been dragged here. Perhaps to see a baby prayed for. Perhaps you're here for other reasons, but you may be here thinking, what are these people doing? What are these deluded people desperately doing, trying to keep God happy? And you may maybe even feel sorry for us. But if we look at Psalm 63, we see nothing of a man trying to get God to be happy with him. Nothing like that at all. Here is David on the receiving end of some terrible treatment. Having received promises to be anointed for kingship and all this stuff is going wrong. And what comes out of his mouth isn't some expletives and cursing towards God. Not calling God a liar or saying, God, what have you done? But instead, what comes out of his mouth is a testimony about his personal experience of an incredible and amazing God that he serves. Derek Kidner, a commentator, says this. The longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger feeling his way towards God, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he holds dear. This is what David is living out of. This is the hope that he comes with. And this is the fuel that helps him carry on in faith. God is who he said he is. God will help. God is my deliverer. God is my rescuer. In God I take refuge. And notice how David uses the senses to describe his actual relationship with God. He's, he's dazzled by God. He's tasted of God. He's received love so deep and rich that it is better to him than life itself. I mean, just think of that. I mean, we've, most of us have probably been in love at least once in our life. But to know a love that is, you could say, this is better than life. David knows what it is to be upheld by the mighty hand of God. It's a deep relationship with the true and living God. There's no religious duty. He's not doing a duty. Not just some objective facts that David has understood, but rather a subjective experience of the living God. See, Christianity is not just objective truth. It is that, but it is so much more. The truth can be experienced. It's to not know about God. It's to know and experience the living God. And that's what God wants for us desperately. He wants to know us. He wants us to be in relationship with us. He didn't send his son to die so we could know about him. He sent his son to die to to rip away a curtain that was separating us. He sent his son to die so that the sin that separated us from God could be wiped away and that we could actually come into a loving relationship and friendship with God. A Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, tells a story to illustrate this point of of the difference between status and experience. He says, what if there was a boy walking along the road holding his father's hand and the father looks down and says, I love you, son. And they're walking along and then a few minutes later, the father wraps up his son in his arms, squeezes him and looks into his eyes and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And Thomas Goodwin asks the question, is the son more of a son when he's walking hand in hand 
or when he is embraced. There is no change in status between when he was holding hands and when he was embraced. But there was a change of experience. God doesn't just want you to know your status loved by God. He wants you to experience your status if you are in relationship with him. If you're not, there's an opportunity to do that today, right now. If you are, he wants you to experience it. Perhaps you are not a Christian and you just don't know what I'm talking about. This is all weird stuff and uh, I've never understood this. Do you know what? There'll be some Christians here who don't know. There'll be Christians here who've never understood that and never experienced that. But they are convinced by the truth. And the good thing is there's hope for all of us, Christians and non-Christians, if we come to him to experience his love. We hold out for, I want to know you, God. I would encourage you, pray that prayer often. God, help me experience your love. Help me experience your love. I've heard stories of people praying that for years. And then suddenly, like I said, that waterfall, just incredible overflow experience of God's love. Breaking people's, the Bible says, I can make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And to know God's love, it does that. And you can see David has a heart of flesh, a soft heart towards even an enemy here. I'll tell you a quick story. One of my brothers for a, for a long time was kind of running away from God, just, just uh, searching for hope in the world and, uh, and just really going his own way. And my mum, after a few years of this, just was fed up. She'd have had enough. So she spent a week praying and fasting for him. She would drive to the house where he used to go and smoke weed with his friends and stuff. And she would sit outside in the car and she would pray and she would fast and she, she fought for him in prayer. And that week, he, um, he said to her, have you been praying for me? And she said, yeah. And he said, I think it's working. And uh, he was, it's going to make me emotional, but he was at, he was at work and he was um, in the office just doing some filing. And an old worship song just came to his head and he was... Um, he was uh, saying it to himself, singing it in his mind. And you, probably, you might know it. It says, oh, I love you, Lord. Really love you, Lord. I will never understand why you love me. You are my deepest joy. You are my heart's desire. And the greatest thing of all, oh, Lord, I see, you delight in me. And he was broken. And he had to go to the toilet and sob in the cubicle as the love of God poured on him. And that changed his life. God doesn't want us to just know about his love. He wants you to feel it. He wants you to experience it. And when you do, it's life-changing. It really is available. And I don't want to discourage people who say, well, I've never felt that, and I've asked for it. I want to encourage you, keep asking. We do believe in a living God who speaks to us and moves on us. And you still may be sitting here and thinking, okay, I, I kind of get some of this stuff, but... It's too hard for me to show mercy and forgiveness to the person who betrayed me or the people who hurt me. There's just no way I can do it. They deserve to be punished. Well, God knows what you're talking about. He knows how you feel. He's very familiar with righteous anger because he feels it all the time. Because people are sinning against him all the time. The Bible says throughout that our sin to him is like an adulterous relationship. The one who loves us and pours love on us and has never forsaken us. We, we just pick and choose. Yeah, I love you today and then tomorrow I'll go off to this other lover and try and look there for hope. And, and to him it is gut-wrenching. It is so heart 
It breaks his heart. He knows what it's like to feel righteous anger. And as I said at the beginning, you're right. Sin deserves to be punished. The Bible says in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. So yes, the person that hurt you or the people that hurt you do deserve to be punished. They deserve justice. They deserve death. But so do you. I don't want to minimize anyone's pain or sorrow. Your sin against God, though, is even more painful for him to bear than the sin you have been on the receiving end of. You may find that hard to believe if you've been really through some difficult things. But the sin you've committed is even harder for him to bear than the sin that you've been on the receiving end of. How do we know? Because he did bear it. He did bear it. In the most extraordinary way, God mercifully took out the justice that was headed towards you on his own son. Jesus willingly laid down his life so that you could know the free and blissful love of God. He has had his, your sin upon him. And he bore it in the most gruesome way on the cross where the wrath of God was poured on him and he was marred beyond human likeness. And the relationship between God, the Father, and the Son was broken in that moment as the sin that was upon us was put upon him. Like David, Jesus was betrayed. He was treated as an outcast. He was the recipient of the greatest injustice. The most pure and perfect man to ever live was put to death, executed for sin that he didn't commit. Like David, Jesus could have struck back. In the garden, at one point, Peter does strike back. He picks out a soldier's sword and chops off his ear. And Jesus bends down and picks the ear up and heals the soldier and says, Peter, don't you know at any moment I could call on more than 12 legions of angels? But rather than take justice into his own hands, he trusted the Father. He said, not my will, but yours be done. And he paid the price for our injustice. Even on the cross, bloodied, beaten, beard ripped out, battered, spat at, mocked. Somehow, our Jesus was able to say, Father, forgive them. This is mercy. This is mercy. This is where we get the ability to show mercy. Forgiveness and love. When we reflect on the incredible mercy, forgiveness and love that's been poured out on us, how could we say to somebody, it's not good enough, I don't forgive you? When we see this mercy and forgiveness that has been given to us. I'm not saying it's easy, but when we reflect on this mercy, as David does actually in Psalm 103, verses 8 and 12, David is able to be merciful to Saul because he knows the mercy of God. It says the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. This is mercy that we've been on the receiving end of. God is a God of justice. And one way or another, the person who 
treated you wrong will serve justice. Whether that is the day they meet God face to face and judgment will be poured out on them. Or whether they come to know Jesus and trust that their judgment was poured out on Jesus. One way or another, we are all justly dealt with. Incredible mercy. And it's important that we don't just focus on the sin that's been committed against us, but we repent of the sin that we've committed against God. and We call on him for mercy. That he's so willing, so willing to lavishly pour out on us. Mercy, grace, love, adoration. We sang and we, we, we enjoyed the picture of you know, the ring being put on our finger. He wants us. He wants to choose us as his own. He loves us with an everlasting love. And David knew this so well. God of mercy, God of joy. God, your love is better than life. And when we see this, we can live free from guilt and shame. And we can live free to love and be merciful And forgiving to others. So when you've been sinned against. You're right to want justice. But you can trust God for justice. And as you do he'll work in you. You can show mercy and love. Because you've been shown mercy and love in Jesus. Let's stand shall we. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to sing a song to respond. And uh, there may be some people who would like to be prayed for. You may want to pray in your seats. Uh, If you'd like to pray for a few things I I thought of here, perhaps it is just to thank God for mercy. Maybe you've just forgot. You've kind of been a bit self-righteous. Well, I deserve his love, don't I? And maybe today you've remembered, I really don't. I really don't. And he has poured out his love on me. Perhaps you want to ask for forgiveness yourself. You've never asked for forgiveness of your sins. And God can forgive and be merciful in Jesus. Perhaps you can ask for Help to forgive and extend mercy to others. You may really be going through a difficult time. You just need help to trust God in his justice and his mercy and extend it yourself. And lastly, maybe you want to experience God's love as we spoke about. You just think, I've never really experienced it in a way that has hit me, you know, deep. And I want to experience that. And we can pray for that. And we'd love to pray for you for anything at all over at the prayer area. Maybe one of those things. Or maybe you want to do that with a friend or in your seat on your own. But let's respond now together. Father, we thank you for this incredible love that is better than life. A life without you isn't a life. And uh, Lord, we thank you for the love you've poured on us. Shown to us through Jesus going the distance, going so far to show I love you with an everlasting love. I pray, Lord, would you reveal love to us in deep ways. Help us to experience your love. Help us to know your uh, your steadfast love, that you're with us, that you endure, your love endures forever. That you are not uh, here today, gone tomorrow, but you are a committed, steadfast God. I pray for people here that don't know you at all. And maybe today's an opportunity for them to say, I want to know this love. I want to know this mercy. And I want to be able to let go of things that have been causing bitterness in my life. I pray help people to respond to you and move us forward in Jesus. We thank you so much for your goodness, what you're doing in us, thousands of things. We only know about one or two. Thank you for your commitment to us. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but 
please do not edit the content in any way.